0: Welcome to part two of our series on Anastasia titled Anastasia the Fall of Russia and the Miracle of the Sun. Part two of our story follows the fate of the Romanovs and the youngest of their four daughters Anastasia as they move inexorably toward the ending that the new ruling Bolshevik party has in store for them as World War I swirls around them and the lives of three faithful Portuguese shepherd children Lucia Santos aged 12, and her two younger cousins, Francisco and Julia Martos, as they experience a series of holy apparitions warning of an approaching global apocalypse, which can only be prevented by Russia's return to faith. A huge message for young children, not even in their teens yet, to deliver. But as many people say, God works in mysterious ways. To the heavenly messengers... 1917 must have looked like the end of mankind. Over one million souls had died already on battlefields from poison gas, bombs, bullets, cannons and disease. And another million were to follow. Genocide, a word which didn't appear until 1943, but meaning the systematic destruction of any ethnic or religious peoples, was taking place on a worldwide scale beginning with the massacre of nearly two million Christian Armenians who were put to the sword by Muslims in Turkey, then a part of the Caliph-controlled and crumbling Ottoman Empire, which allied with the central powers of Germany and Austria-Hungary against the Allies in World War I. These Young Turks, as they were called, declared a holy war on all Christians within reach of the Ottoman Empire in 1914 and killed hundreds of thousands of Christians in Greece and what is now present day Iran, Iraq, Turkey and Syria. Another million souls were turned toward atheistic socialism and communism and away from what many had considered God the Father to Lenin and later Stalin the Father. It was a world of shifting alliances as well political and religious. An upside-down world in which Jews in Russia, for the most part, joined the Socialist Revolution rather than face exile, and were well-placed and making murderous decisions within the Bolshevik government. Masons, mostly of Protestant faith, as we revealed in Part 1, were active in pulling down the Catholic Church as well, and if that meant siding with non-Christian governments and ruling parties, so be it. It was looking like everyone had a bloody hand in the action in 1917. There's a dark cloud of war and death and political and religious chaos hanging over most of civilization by the fall of that year. They say that if we don't learn from history, we're bound to repeat it. 100 years have passed since 1917. And as you listen to all sides of the following story, ask yourself, what have we learned? Our story in Part 2 begins in a small rural hamlet in Portugal in 1915, about 10 miles outside the community of Fatima, and ends with the tragic death of the Romanovs in Siberia in 1918, and the legends surrounding Anastasia. There is a Catholic church in the area, and the families and children are very devout and lead simple lives based on farming and raising livestock. War is not raging in this little corner of the world, although Portugal became involved in the Great War that July, and a new political destabilizing leadership had garnered control, one which had strictly warned the Catholic Church against recognizing any miracles, and one that removed many priests from their churches for not recognizing the new authority and committing indiscretions of a religious nature. In 1911... Those church properties were confiscated by that government, and payments to clerics were stopped. The Portuguese legislation at the Vatican was stopped in 1913. The principal character in this story is Lucia Santos, who, at the age of seven, witnesses a holy apparition, which was to be the first of six, while tending sheep with two other children. Much of this story is related in our episode The Miracle of the Sun, which is found in our archives at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And if you haven't heard that one, I encourage you to listen. I am not a Catholic, but I respect all people of faith, and these children had it to a far greater degree than most adults. As to what they saw and told, I also believe, after heavy research, that a series of heavenly spokespersons, or angels, if you will, vastly worried that the world was going to hell in a handbasket, my words, appeared and spoke to them. Why they chose little shepherd children in Portugal, I'm not completely sure, except to say that these heavenly spirits knew that the children were believers and trusted them to get the message out without interference or conceit or doubt. Here's what happened to Lucia in her own words which can be found at a website called the theshrineofstjude.net, with saint spelled out, S-A-I-N-T. We pick up her diary after she spends the first few chapters describing her family, her church, and her life before the apparitions began. This was how things were until I was seven years old. My mother then decided that I should take over the care of our sheep. My father did not agree, nor did my sisters. They were so fond of me, they wanted an exception made in my case. My mother would not give in. She's just like the rest, she said. Carolina is already 12 years old. That means she can now begin to work in the fields, or else learn to be a weaver or a seamstress, whichever she prefers. The care of our flock was then given to me, News that I was beginning my life as a shepherdess spread rapidly among the other shepherds. Almost all of them came and offered to be my companions. I said yes to everybody and arranged with each one to meet on the slopes of the Sarah. Next day the Sarah was a solid mass of sheep with their shepherds as though a cloud had descended upon it. But I felt ill at ease in the midst of such a hubbub. I therefore chose three companions from among the shepherds. Without saying a word to anyone, we arranged to pasture our sheep on the opposite slopes. These were the three I chose, Teresa Matias, her sister Maria Rosa, and Maria Justino. On the following day, we set out in the direction of a hill known as the Quebeco. We went up the northern slope. On the eastern slope is a cave. Together with our flocks, we climbed almost to the top of the hill. At our feet lay a wide expanse of olive trees, olives, oaks, pines, holm oaks, and so on, that stretched away down towards the level valley below. Around midday we ate our lunch. After this, I invited my companions to pray the rosary with me, to which they eagerly agreed. We had hardly begun when, There before our eyes, we saw a figure poised in the air above the trees. It looked like a statue made of snow, rendered almost transparent by the rays of the sun. What is that? asked my companions, quite frightened. I don't know. We went on praying, with our eyes fixed on the figure before us. And as we finished our prayer, the figure disappeared. As was usual with me... I resolved to say nothing, but my companions told their families what had happened the very moment they reached home. The news soon spread, and one day when I arrived home, my mother questioned me. ''Look here. They say you've seen I don't know what up there. What was it you saw?'' ''I don't know,'' as I could not explain it myself. I went on, ''It looked like a person wrapped up in a sheet. As I meant to say that I couldn't discern its features, I added, You couldn't make out any eyes or hands on it. My mother put an end to the whole matter with a gesture of childish nonsense. After some time, we returned to our flocks to the same place, and the very same thing happened again. My companions once more told the whole story. After a brief interval, The same thing was repeated. It was the third time that my mother heard all these things being talked about outside, without my having said a single word about them at home. She called me, therefore, quite displeased and demanded, Now let us see what it is that you girls say you saw over there. I don't know, Mother. I don't know what it is. Some people started making fun of us. My sisters, recalling that for some time after my first communion, I had been quite abstracted, used to ask me scornfully, Do you see someone wrapped up in a sheet? I felt these contemptuous words and gestures very keenly, as up to now I had been used to nothing but caresses. But this was nothing, really. You see, I did not know what the good Lord had in store for me in the future. The following year in 1916, Lucia was with different companions when another apparition, that of an angel, appeared multiple times. Her diary continues. Around this time, Francisco and Jacinta sought and obtained permission from their parents to start taking care of their own flock. So I left my good companions and I joined my cousins, Francisco and Jacinta, instead. To avoid going to the Serra with all the other shepherds, we arranged to pasture our flocks on properties belonging to my uncle and aunt and my parents. One fine day, we set out with our sheep for some land that my parents owned, which lay at the foot at the eastern side of the slope of the hill that I have already mentioned. This property was called Chausabella. Soon after our arrival, about mid-morning, a fine drizzle began to fall so fine that it seemed like mist. We went up the hillside, followed by our flocks, looking for an overhanging boulder where we could take shelter. Thus it was for the first time that we entered this blessed hollow among the rocks. It stood in the middle of an olive grove belonging to my godfather, Anastasio. From there you could see the little village where I was born, my parents' home, and the hamlets of Casavella and Era de Pedra. We spent the day there, among the rocks, in spite of the fact that the rain was over and the sun was shining bright and clear. We ate our lunch and said our rosary. Our prayer finished, we started to play pebbles. We had enjoyed the game for a few moments only, when a strong wind began to shake the trees. We looked up, startled, to see what was happening, for the day was unusually calm. Then we saw coming towards us, above the olive trees, the figure I have already spoken about. Jacinta and Francisco had never seen it before, nor had I ever mentioned it to them. As it drew closer, we were able to distinguish its features. It was a young man, about fourteen or fifteen years old, whiter than snow, transparent as crystal when the sun shines through it, and of great beauty. On reaching us he said, Do not be afraid. I am the Angel of Peace pray with me. Kneeling on the ground, he bowed down until his forehead touched the ground and made us repeat these words three times. My God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love you. I ask pardon of you for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope, and do not love you. Then rising, he said, Pray thus, The hearts of Jesus and Mary are attentive to the voice of your supplications. His words engraved themselves so deeply on our minds that we could never forget them. From then on, we used to spend long periods of time, prostrate like the angel, repeating his words, until sometimes we fell exhausted. I warned my companions right away that this must be kept secret, and thank God, They did what I asked. This angel appeared again to the children, identifying himself as the Angel of Portugal and asking for the faith and sacrifice it would require to bring peace. The angel also spoke of very hard times ahead. Lucia continues as troubles mount in her home. Her family had lost property, and her sisters had left home to take on work as servants to make money for the family. My poor mother seemed just drowned in the depths of distress. When we gathered around the fire at nighttime, waiting for my father to come in to supper, my mother would look at her daughter's empty places and exclaim with profound sadness My God, where has all of the joy of our home gone? Then, resting her head on a little table beside her, she would burst into tears. My brother and I wept with her. It was one of the saddest scenes I have ever witnessed. What with longing for my sisters, and seeing my mother so miserable, I felt my heart was just breaking. Although I was only a child, I understood perfectly the situation we were in. Then I remembered the angel's words, Above all, Accept submissively the sacrifices that the Lord will send you. At such times, I used to withdraw to a solitary place so as not to add to my mother's suffering by letting her see my own. This place was usually our well. There, on my knees, leaning over the edge of the stone slabs that covered the well, my tears mingled with the waters below, and I offered my suffering to God. Between May and September 1917, Lucia and her cousins, Jacinta and Francisco Marto, reported visions of a luminous lady, who they believed to be the Virgin Mary, in the Cova da Aria fields outside their hamlet of Algestrel, near Fatima. The visitations took place on the 13th day of each month at approximately noon, for six straight months. The only exception was August, when the children were detained by the local administrator. That story to come in her words. That month, they did not report a vision of the lady until after they were released from jail some days later. This incarceration, initiated for the purpose of having the children admit that they were lying about the visions, was portrayed in the 1952 movie The Miracle of Our Lady of Fatima from Warner Brothers. This movie does an excellent job of telling her story truthfully and we highly recommend it. Lucia writes about the days she, Jacinta, and Francisco were first interrogated and then forced to stay overnight in prison in the town of Orem where they were threatened with torture and even death to force an admission that they had been lying about the visions. She continues. Not many days later, Our parents were notified to the effect that all three of us, Jacinta, Francisco and myself, together with our fathers, were to appear at a given hour on the following day before the administration in Vils Nova Urum. This meant that we had to make a journey of about nine miles, a considerable distance for three small children. The only means of transport in those days was either our own two feet or to ride on a donkey. "'My uncle sent word right away that he would appear himself, "'but as for his children, he was not taking them. "'They'd never stand the trip on foot,' he said. "'And not being used to riding, "'they could never manage to stay on the donkey. "'And anyway, there's no sense in bringing two children like that before court.' "'My parents thought the opposite. "'My daughter is going. Let her answer for herself. "'As for me, I understand nothing of these things.' If she is lying, then it's a good thing that she should be punished for it. Very early the next morning, they put me on a donkey, and off I went, accompanied by my father and my uncle. I fell off the donkey three times along the way. I can't tell you how much Jacinta and Francisco suffered that day, thinking I was going to be killed. As for me, what hurt me most was the indifference shown me by my parents. This was all the more obvious since i could see how affectionately my aunt and uncle treated their children i remember thinking to myself as we went along how different my parents are from my uncle and aunt they risk themselves to defend their children while my parents hand me over with the greatest indifference and let them do what they like with me but i must be patient i reminded myself in my inmost heart since this means I have the happiness of suffering more for love of you, O oh my God, and for the conversion of sinners. This reflection never failed to bring me consolation. At the administration office, I was interrogated by the administrator in the presence of my father, my uncle, and several other gentlemen who were strangers to me. The administrator was determined to force me to reveal the secret and to promise him never to return to the cova To attain his end, he spared neither promises nor even threats. Seeing he was getting nowhere, he dismissed me, protesting, however, that he would achieve his end, even if it meant that he had to take my life. He then strongly reprimanded my uncle for not having carried out his orders and finally let us go home. In other writings, she describes the time spent with the prisoners at Orem, who were not hardened criminals, and who took pity on the children, taking time to listen to them, pray with them, and let them know they were safer with them than with the authorities. All this only to return home and face again the doubts and broom beatings administered by her mother. She writes of one of many rough moments with her mother as the apparitions continued, and people began arriving from all around the region, asking to be led to where the next apparition was to take place. I have seen it, my mother often said, that my children always told the truth. And am I now to let the youngest get away with a thing like this? If it were a small, just a small thing, but a lie of such proportions? Deceiving so many people and bringing them all the way here? After these bitter complaints, she would turn to me saying, Make up your mind what you want. Either undo all this deception by telling these people that you've lied, or I'll lock you up in a dark room where you won't even see the light of the sun. After all the troubles I've been through, and now for a thing like this to happen? My sisters all sided with my mother, and all around me the atmosphere was one of utter scorn and contempt. Then I would remember the old days and ask myself, Where is all that affection now? That my family had for me just a short while ago. My one relief was to weep before the Lord as I offered him this sacrifice. It was on this very day that, in addition to what I've already narrated, Our Lady, as though guessing what was going on, said to me, Are you suffering a great deal? Don't lose heart. I will never forsake you. My immaculate heart will be your refuge and the way that will lead you to God. Around that time, our parish priest came to know of what was happening and sent word to my mother to take me to his house. My mother felt she could breathe again, thinking the priest was going to take responsibility for these events on himself. She therefore said to me, Tomorrow we're going to Mass, first thing in the morning. Then you are going to the Reverend Father's house. Just let him compel you to tell the truth, no matter how he does it. Let him punish you. Let him do whatever he likes with you, just so long as he forces you to admit that you have lied. And then I'll be satisfied. My sisters took my mother's part and invented endless threats, just to frighten me about the interview with the parish priest. I told Jacinta and her brother all about it. We're going also, they replied. The Reverend Father told our mother to take us there too, but she didn't say any of those things to us. Never mind. If they beat us, we'll suffer for love of our Lord and for sinners. Next day I walked behind my mother, who did not address a simple word to me the whole way. I must admit that I was trembling at the thought of what was going to happen. During Mass, I offered my suffering to God. Afterwards, I followed my mother out of the church, over to the priest's house, and started up the stairs leading to the veranda. We had climbed only a few steps when my mother turned round and exclaimed, "'Don't annoy me anymore. "'Tell the Reverend Father now that you have lied "'so that on Sunday he can say in the church "'that it was all a lie "'and that will be the end of this whole affair. "'A nice business this is. "'All the crowd running to the Cova Ria "'just to pray in front of a whole oak bush.'" Without more ado, she knocked on the door. The good priest's daughter opened the door and invited us to sit down on a bench and wait a while. At last the parish priest appeared. He took us into his study, motioned my mother to take a seat, and beckoned me over to his desk. When I found that his reverence was questioning me quite calmly and with such a kindly manner, I was amazed. I was still fearful, however, of what was yet to come. The interrogation was very minute, and, I would venture to say, tiresome. His reverence concluded with this brief observation. It doesn't seem to me like a revelation from heaven. It is usual in such cases for our Lord to tell the souls to whom He makes such communications to give their confessor or parish priest an account of what has happened. But this child, on the contrary, keeps it to herself as far as she can. This may also be a deceit of the devil. We shall see. The future will show us what we are to think about it all. On the next-to-last visit of the apparition of the Lady, Lucia, having suffered through the doubt and accusations of those closest to her, including her priest, and seeing the grief her family had suffered, asked the Virgin Mary to please provide some kind of tangible proof that people could witness that would settle all the doubt that had plagued her testimony and stories through the past years. On her next-to-last visit, on September 13, 1917, the Virgin Mary asked Jacinto, Francisco, and Lucia to persevere in their prayers and filled them with anticipation as they waited and prepared for some spectacular events that she said were to take place during her next visit on October 13th. Continue to pray the rosary in order to obtain the end of the war. In October, our Lord will come as well as Our Lady of Sorrows and Our Lady of Mount Carmel. St. Joseph will appear with Jesus to bless the world. She had kept all of her promises to this point. She had comforted them and revealed many extraordinary things. Thus, they had no reason to doubt her when she promised a visit by St. Joseph and Jesus. These future events, however, were most likely to be private revelations, like the others had been. But then Our Lady spoke several words that must have sparked joy in their souls. Until this time, despite crowds in the tens of thousands, it was only the three who experienced the supernatural phenomena. Many, including their own parents, members of the clergy, regional press agents, and government officials, either were or remained skeptical of the whole series of events reported by the children. Now, however, now the lady was promising a miracle. A miracle, not for their eyes only, but a public miracle. The public nature of this miracle was plainly revealed in the angels words so that all may believe in October I will perform a miracle so that all may believe by nightfall on October 12, 1917 World War I was raging at a fever pitch the British Army was stretched out along a six-mile front making slight progress German advances were being checked along the entire French front Pounding wind and rain, however, put a halt to any further advances on either side that night. Despite this torrential downpour from the evening of October 12th and into the very next day, right up until the time of the apparition, an immense crowd, a crowd consisting of faithful devotees and skeptical mockers, among them atheists and Masonic press agents and government officials, undeterred by the horrendous weather, gathered and made their way for miles by foot to the Cova de Areia. The children had to rise and leave home early on the stormy morning of the 13th. With the August imprisonment still fresh in their minds and the hush of threats circulating in the air, they were accompanied by a vanguard of family and friends to protect them from the swarming multitude and agents of progressivism sweeping Europe Spain and Portugal. Around noon Time when Our Lady finally did appear, she told them that it was her wish that a chapel be built there in her honor and asked them to pray the rosary every day. She also assured them that the war was going to soon end. She also instructed the children that people who were asking for cures must amend their lives and ask forgiveness for their sins. Lucia asked the angel for her name. The answer, I am the Lady of the Rosary. Again, looking very sad, she said, Do not offend our Lord any more, for he is already much offended. After this, she opened both hands and made them reflect on the sun. She then ascended toward the luminous disk while continuing to reflect her own light directly into it. Then Lucia cried out for everyone to look at the sun. Although the rain had stopped, ominous clouds continued to obscure the sun, which suddenly burst through the darkness as a soft spinning disk of silver. The crowd gasped. Look at the sun! A reporter for the Lisbon newspaper Odea wrote, The silver sun, enveloped in the same gauzy gray light, was seen to whirl and turn in the circle of broken clouds. The light turned a beautiful blue as if it had come through the stained glass windows of a cathedral and spread itself over the people who knelt with outstretched hands. People wept and prayed with uncovered heads in the presence of a miracle they had awaited. The seconds seemed like hours, so vivid were they. Dr. Almeida Garrett Professor of Natural Sciences at the University of Coimbra, was present and was frightened by the spinning sun. Afterward, he wrote, Suddenly I heard the screams coming from thousands of throats. It must have been about 2 p.m. I looked in the same direction as all the other pairs of eyes and saw the sun as a disc, sharply outlined, sparkling, glowing, and painless for the eyes to gaze at. The sun's disc did not remain immobile, this was not the sparkling of a heavenly body, for it spun round on itself in a mad whirl, when suddenly a clamor was heard from all the people. The sun, whirling, seemed to loosen itself from the firmament and advance threateningly upon the earth as if to crush us with its huge fiery weight. The sensation during those moments was terrible. All the colors in the atmosphere changed, all the objects around me took on the color of an amethyst. Dr. Manuel Formiggeo, a priest and professor at the seminary at Santarum had attended an earlier apparition in September and had questioned the three children on several occasions. Father Formiggeo wrote, As if like a bolt from the blue, the clouds were wrenched apart and the sun at its zenith appeared in all its splendor. It began to revolve vertiginously on its axis like the most magnificent fire wheel that could be imagined, taking on all the colors of the rainbow and sending forth multicolored flashes of light, producing the most astounding effect. This sublime and incomparable spectacle, which was repeated three distinct times, lasted for about ten minutes. The immense multitude, overcome by the evidence of such a tremendous prodigy, threw themselves on their knees. At the same time the miracle of the sun was occurring, so too was the great October socialist revolution in Russia. Commonly referred to as the October uprising or the Bolshevik revolution led by Vladimir Lenin, it culminated with the seizure of state power by armed insurrectionists in Petrograd on October 13th, the same day. Basically, in one might call a cold insurrection, the Bolshevik-led Soviet took control of the armed bodies of men out of the hands of the provisional government. By October 13th, the soldier section of the Petrograd Soviet voted to transfer military authority from headquarters to the Military Revolutionary Committee. In other words, the Soviet now had state power in all but name. While the Communists were seizing power in Russia under cover of darkness, as Our Lady had foretold in July, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were blessing the world at Fatima. Following the miracle of the sun, Our Lady then disappeared into the depth of heaven, and in her place, St. Joseph and Jesus appeared accompanied by the Virgin Mary, now robed in white with a blue mantle as mother of the Holy Family. St. Joseph and Jesus then made the sign of the cross over the world, and disappeared. Then Jesus reappeared with Our Lady of Sorrows and blessed the world. Finally, according to Lucia and her cousins, Our Lady of Mount Carmel appeared, holding the Carmelite brown scapular in her hands. During this time, no words were spoken. Lucia later said, Our Lady never looked so beautiful as when she appeared in her Carmelite habit. So I researched the Lady of Mount Carmel, not knowing anything about it and found a fascinating background. To the Catholics and the Russian Orthodox who believe in the saints, the Lady of Mount Carmel has appeared numerous times through history when serious challenges to faith in God existed. She was best known for routing the prophets of Baal, the devil, from their mountaintop abode, where Elisha and Elijah were trying to hang on to their faiths and their lives. Another famous appearance by the Lady of Mount Carmel occurred in Palmy, Italy in 1894 the faithful in Palmy had erected a statue of the Virgin Mary appearing as the Lady of Mount Carmel, clothed in her brown scapula, or outer robe. On or around November 1st of that year, the inhabitants began seeing strange eye movements and changes in the colorings on her face. More and more people gathered, and the changes kept occurring until the town finally decided to carry her statue in a procession on the evening of the 16th of that month. The local and national press reported these occurrences as what is still remembered as the miracle of the earthquake of 1894 occurred. In the evening of the 16th of November, the faithful improvised a procession carrying the statue of the Virgin of Carmel on their shoulders through the streets. When the procession reached the end of the city, a violent earthquake shook the whole district of Palmy, ruining most of the old houses along the way. Out of a population of about 15,000 inhabitants only nine people died as almost all of the population had been on the street to watch the procession and were not trapped inside the destroyed buildings. Therefore the city commemorates the 1894 procession each year accompanied by firecrackers, lights and festive stalls. The next time you're in Palmy, Italy on November 16th you'll know what all the fuss is about. During the miracle of the sun, Lucia asked Our Lady why she held out the brown scapular, to which she replied, I want all my children to wear it. This would be the last apparition seen by Jacinta and Francisco. The Three Secrets of Fatima consist of a series of apocalyptic visions and prophecies which were given to the three young Portuguese shepherds, Lucia Santos, and her cousins, Jacinta and Francisco Marto. By a marian apparition which started may 13, 1917 the first of the visions according to lucia on july 13 1917 around noon the virgin mary entrusted the children with three secrets lucia said that the first secret was a vision of hell the second secret was a statement that world war one would end along with a prediction of another war during the reign of Pope Pius XI, should men continue offending God and should Russia not convert. The second half of that secret requested that Russia be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, basically meaning that Russia should return to their faith in God. According to Lucia, the Virgin told them, you have seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go. To save them, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart. If what I say to you is done, many souls will be saved, and there will be peace. The war is going to end, but if people do not cease offending God, a worse one will break out during the pontificate of Pope Pius XI. When you see a night illumined by an unknown light, know that this is the great sign given you by God that He is about to punish the world for its crimes by means of war, famine and persecutions of the Church and of the Holy Father. To prevent this, I shall come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the Church. The good will be martyred, the Holy Father will have much to suffer, various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me, and she shall be converted, and a period of peace will be granted to the world. Unfortunately, Russia did not come around until over 70 years later and the night illumined by an unknown light did occur. According to Fatima prophecies, on January 25, 1938 a remarkable display of aurora borealis was visible all across Europe while the Germans were planning their attack into Poland in the coming days that would start World War II. The light was so bright that people panicked and the aurora borealis was no stranger to people in the northern climes. Skeptics still say that the miracle of the sun was just an unnatural event caused by an atmosphere anomaly. But when questioned about the fact that it was predicted to the day and the time and 70,000 people were there to see it, the skeptics are usually speechless. The event is still unequaled in modern times. And now to the last days of Anastasia. As World War I raged in the years from 1914 until their imprisonment in 1917, Anastasia, along with her sister Maria, visited wounded soldiers at a private hospital on the grounds at Sarskoy Salo. The two teenagers, too young to become Red Cross nurses like their mother and elder sisters, played games of checkers and billiards with the soldiers and tried to lift their spirits. Felix Dassel, who was treated at the hospital and knew Anastasia, recalled that the Grand Duchess had a laugh like a squirrel and walked rapidly as though she tripped along. However insensitive the masses might have felt the Tsar and the Romanov family were, the Romanovs did try to instill a sense of caring in their children. In addition to volunteering at hospitals, They sewed and knitted clothing and blankets for charity events. The Tsar's mother, Maria Feodorovna, set up hospitals, schools and orphanages and was a huge contributor to the Red Cross. Around 700,000 people received help at Maria Feodorovna's centers. The last court ball, a grand one, took place in 1903 when Anastasia was two. In February of 1917, Anastasia and her family were placed under house arrest at the Alexander Palace in Selo during the Russian Revolution. Nicholas II abdicated his throne on March 2nd, 1917. As the Bolsheviks approached, Alexander Kerensky of the Provisional Government had them moved to Tobolsk, Siberia. After the Bolsheviks seized majority control of Russia, which officially happened on the same day as the Miracle of the Sun, Anastasia and her family were moved to the Apatiev House, or House of Special Purpose, at Yekaterinburg. The stress and uncertainty of captivity took their toll on Anastasia as well as her family. Goodbye, she wrote to a friend in the winter of 1917, don't forget us. At Tobolsk she wrote a melancholy theme for her English tutor filled with spelling mistakes about Evelyn Hope a poem by Robert Browning about a young girl. Anastasia's theme went like this. When she died, she was only 16 years old. There was a man who loved her without having seen her, but knew her very well, and she had heard of him also. He never could tell her that he loved her, but still he thought that when he and she will live their next life, whenever that will be. At Tobolsk she and her sisters sewed jewels into their clothing in hopes of hiding them from their captors, since Alexandra had written to warn them that she, Nicholas and Maria had been searched upon arriving at Yekaterinburg and had items confiscated. Their mother used the predetermined code words medicines and Sednev's belongings for the jewels. Letters from Demidova to Teglova gave the instructions. Pierre Gilliard recalled his last sight of the children at Yekaterinburg. The sailor Nagorny, who attended to Alexei Nikolovich, passed my window carrying the sick boy in his arms. Behind him came the Grand Duchesses loaded with valises and small personal belongings. I tried to get out but was roughly pushed back into the carriage by the sentry. I came back to the window. Tatana Nikolaevna came last carrying her little dog and struggling to drag a heavy brown balise. It was raining and I saw her feet sink into the mud at every step. Nagomi tried to come to her assistance. He was roughly pushed back by one of the commissars. Baroness Sophie Buxovadin told of her last sad glimpse of Anastasia. Once, standing on some steps at the door of a house close by, I saw a hand and a pink-sleeved arm opening the topmost pane. According to the blouse, the hand must have belonged either to the Grand Duchess Marie or Anastasia. They could not see me through their windows and this was to be the last glimpse that I was to have of any of them. But even in the last months of her life, Anastasia found ways to enjoy herself. She and other members of the household performed plays for the enjoyment of their parents and others in the spring of 1918. Anastasia's performance made everyone howl with laughter, according to her tutor, Sidney Gibbs. In a May 7, 1918 letter from Tobolsk to her sister Maria in Yekaterinburg, Anastasia described a moment of joy, despite her sadness and loneliness and worry for the sick Alexei. We played on the swing. That was when I roared with laughter. The fall was so wonderful. Indeed! I told the sisters about it so many times yesterday that they got quite fed up, but I could go on telling it masses of times. What weather we've had! One could simply shout with joy. In his memoirs, one of the guards at the Apathia house, Alexander Strekatin, remembered Anastasia as very friendly and full of fun, while another guard said, Anastasia was a very charming devil. She was mischievous and, I think, rarely tired. She was lively and was fond of performing comic mimes with the dogs as though they were performing in a circus. Yet another of the guards, however, called the youngest Grand Duchess offensive and a terrorist and complained that her occasionally provocative comments sometimes caused tension in the ranks. Anastasia and her sisters helped their maid darn stockings and assisted the cook in making bread and other kitchen chores while they were in captivity at the Apatia of House. In the summer, the privations of the captivity, including their closer confinement at the Apatia of House, negatively affected the family. According to some accounts, at one point Anastasia became so upset about the locked painted windows that she opened one to look outside and get fresh air. A sentry reportedly saw her and fired Narrowly missing her, the bullet lodging in the window frame. She didn't try again. On July 14th, 1918, local priests at Yekaterinburg conducted a private church service for the family. They reported that Anastasia and her family, contrary to custom, fell on their knees during the prayer for the dead and that the girls had become despondent and hopeless and no longer sang the replies in the service. Noticing this dramatic change in their demeanor since his last visit, one priest told the other, something has happened to them in there. But the next day, on July 15, 1918, Anastasia and her sisters appeared in good spirits as they joked and helped move the beds in their shared bedroom so the cleaning women could clean the floors. They helped the women scrub the floors and whispered to them when the guards weren't watching. Anastasia stuck her tongue out at Yakov Yurovsky, the head of the detachment, when he momentarily turned his back and left the room. They had only one day to live, but were not aware of it. Meanwhile, revolution and civil war were tearing the country apart. There are a number of detailed accounts of the murder of the Romanov family, their doctor, and their attendants. The Yurovsky note, an account of the event filed by Yurovsky, to his Bolshevik superiors, following the killings was found in 1989 and detailed in Edward Radzinski's 1992 book, The Last Tsar. This account contains a graphic description of their execution, although nowhere near as graphic as some. But listener beware. According to the note, on the night of the deaths, the family was awakened and told to dress. They were told they were being moved to a new location to ensure their safety in anticipation of the violence that might ensue when the White Army reached Yekaterinburg. Once dressed, the family and the small circle of servants who had remained with them were herded into a small room in the house's sub-basement and told to wait. Alexandra and Alexei sat in chairs provided by guards at the Empress's request. After several minutes, the guards entered the room, led by Yurovsky, who quickly informed the Tsar and his family that they were to be executed. The Tsar had time to say only, what, and turned to his family before he was killed by several bullets to the chest. The Tsarina and her daughter, Olga, tried to make the sign of the cross, but were killed in the initial volley of bullets fired by the Bolshevik executioners. The rest of the Imperial retinue were shot in short order with the exception of Anna Demidova, Alexandra's maid. Demidova survived the initial onslaught but was quickly murdered against the back wall of the basement. Stabbed to death while trying to defend herself with a small pillow she had carried into the sub-basement. A pillow that was filled with precious gems and jewels. The Yurovsky Note further reported that once the thick smoke that had filled the room from so many weapons being fired in such close proximity cleared, it was discovered that the executioner's bullets had ricocheted off the corsets of two or three of the Grand Duchesses. The executioners later came to find out that this was because the family's crown jewels and diamonds had been sewn inside the linings of the corsets to hide them from their captors. The corsets thus served as a form of armor against the bullets. Anastasia and Maria were said to have crouched up against a wall, covering their heads in terror until they were shot down by bullets, recalled Yurovsky. However, another guard, Peter Ermakov, told his wife that Anastasia had been finished off with bayonets. As the bodies were carried out, one or more of the girls cried out and were clubbed on the back of the head, wrote Yurovsky. It was a banner day for the Bolshevik Socialist Revolution and Lenin, And the masses that had taken up the cause for socialism had to have been gladdened to know that the wealthiest family in Russia had finally received their just punishment. Sick, but no doubt true. After the Bolshevik Revolution in October of 1917, Russia quickly disintegrated into civil war. Negotiations for the release of the Romanovs between their Bolshevik, or Red, captors and their extended family many of whom were prominent members of the royal houses of Europe, stalled. As the Whites, anti-Bolshevik Czech forces, although not necessarily supportive of the Tsar, advanced toward Yekaterinburg, which is east of the Ural Mountains, and about 1,000 miles east of Moscow, at the point where Europe meets Asia, the Reds were in a precarious situation. The Reds knew Yekaterinburg would fall to the better manned and equipped White Army. When the Whites reached Yekaterinburg, the Imperial family had simply disappeared. The most widely accepted account was that the family had been murdered. This was due to an investigation by White Army investigator Nicholas Sokolov, who came to the conclusion based on items that had belonged to the family being found thrown down a mine shaft. Ganina Yama Ganina Yama was a 9-foot deep pit in the Four Brothers mine near the village of Koptyaki 15 kilometers north of Yekaterinburg On the night of the 17th of July 1918 after the execution of the Romanov family the stripped and mutilated bodies of Tsar Nicholas II of Russia and his family who had been executed at the Ipatiev House were secretly transported to Ganina Yama and thrown into the pit a week later the white army drove the bolsheviks from the area and launched an investigation into the fate of the royal family an extensive report concluded that the royal family's remains had been cremated at the mine since evidence of fire was found and charred bones but no bodies but the bolsheviks realizing that the burial site was no longer a secret had returned to the site the night after the first burial to relocate the bodies to another area. The secret Bolshevik report on the execution and burial did not give the location of the second burial site, but the description provided clues. The second burial site, a field known as Porisyonkov Log, four and a half miles from Ganina Yama, was discovered in the late 1970s through clandestine research but kept secret until the political climate changed in 1989. In 1995, the remains found at the Porsyancav ravine, were identified as Romanovs using DNA from living relatives of Nicholas and Alexandra's parents. The Porsyancav ravine burial pit is marked by a cross and simple landscaping of the burial pit. A second smaller pit was located at the Porsyancav ravine in 2007. Containing the remains of two Romanov children missing from the larger grave. The Russian Orthodox Church, relying on the White Army's reports in preference to Bolshevik reports and doubting the DNA identification, declared the Ganina Yama site holy ground. Romanov family descendants likewise have doubts about the DNA identification. The royal family and their retinue had been canonized in 1981 by the Russian Orthodox Church abroad. The grounds were therefore dedicated to honor the family's humility during capture and their status as political martyrs with financial assistance from the ural mining and metallurgical company the church constructed the monastery of the holy imperial passion bearers at the site in 2001. a tall cross marks the edge of the mine shaft visible as a depression in the ground Every year on the anniversary of the murder, a night-long service is held at the Church of All Saints, Church on the Blood, on the site of the Apatyev House, which the Russians had bulldozed in 1977 in an effort to hide any incriminating evidence. At daybreak, a procession walks four hours to Yama for another ceremony. Anastasia's supposed escape and possible survival Was one of the most popular historical mysteries of the 20th century, provoking many books and films. At least 10 women claimed to be her, offering varying stories as to how she had survived. Anna Anderson, the best known Anastasia imposter, first surfaced publicly between 1920 and 1922. She contended that she had feigned death among the bodies of her family and servants and was able to make her escape with the help of a compassionate guard who noticed she was still breathing and took sympathy upon her. Her legal battle for recognition from 1938 to 1970 continued a lifelong controversy and was the longest running case ever heard by German courts where it was officially filed. The final decision of the court was that Anderson had not provided sufficient proof to claim the identity of the Grand Duchess. Anderson died in 1984 and her body was cremated. DNA tests were conducted in 1994 on a tissue sample from Anderson located in a hospital and the blood of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, a grand-nephew of Empress Alexandra. According to Dr. Gill who conducted the test, if you accept that these samples came from Anna Anderson, then Anna Anderson could not be related to Tsar Nicholas or Tsarina Alexandra. Anderson's mitochondrial DNA was a match with a great-nephew of Franziska Szanskowska, a missing Polish factory worker. Some supporters of Anderson's claim acknowledged that the DNA test proving she could not have been the Grand Duchess had won the day. Other lesser-known claimants were Nadezhda Ivanovna Vasilyeva and Eugenia Smith, two young women claiming to be Anastasia and her sister Maria were taken in by a priest in the Ural Mountains in 1919 where they lived as nuns until their deaths in 1964. They were buried under the names Anastasia and Maria Nikolaevna. Rumors of Anastasia's survival were embellished with various contemporary reports of trains and houses being searched for Anastasia Romanov by Bolshevik soldiers and secret police. When she was briefly imprisoned at Perm in 1918, Princess Helena Petrovna, the wife of Anastasia's distant cousin, Prince John Konstantinovich of Russia, reported that a guard brought a girl who called herself Anastasia Romanova to her cell and asked if the girl was the daughter of the Tsar. Helena Petrovna said she did not recognize the girl and the guard took her away. Although other witnesses in Perm later reported that they saw Anastasia, her mother and sisters in Perm, after the murders. This story is now widely discredited. Rumors that they were alive were fueled by deliberate misinformation designed to hide the fact that the family was dead. A few days after they had been murdered, the German government sent several telegrams to Russia demanding the safety of the princesses of German blood. Russia had secretly signed a peace treaty with the Germans and did not want to upset them by letting them know the women were dead, so they told them they had been moved to a safer location, thus giving foundation to more rumors that she was still alive. In another incident, eight witnesses reported the recapture of a young woman after an apparent escape attempt in September 1918 at a railway station at Siding 37, northwest of Perm. These witnesses were... Maxim Grigoyev, Tatiana Sidnikova and her son Fyodor Sidnikova, Ivan Kuklina and Matrina Kuklina, Vasily Ryabov, Ustinya Vrankinya, and Dr. Pavel Yutkin, a physician who treated the girl after the incident. Some of the witnesses identified the girl as Anastasia when they were shown photographs of the Grand Duchess by white Russian army investigators. Utkin also told the White Russian Army investigators that the injured girl, whom he treated at Cheka headquarters in Perm, told him, I am the daughter of the ruler Anastasia. Utkin obtained a prescription from a pharmacy for a patient named N. at the orders of the secret police. White Army investigators later independently located records for the prescription. During the same period, in mid-1918, There were several reports of young people in Russia passing themselves off as Romanov escapees. Boris Soloviev, the husband of Rasputin's daughter Maria, defrauded prominent Russian families by asking for money for a Romanov imposter to escape to China. Soloviev also found young women willing to masquerade as one of the Grand Duchesses to assist in deceiving the families he had defrauded. Some biographers' accounts speculated that the opportunity for one or more of the guards to rescue a survivor did exist. Yakov Yurovsky demanded that the guards come to his office and turn over items they had stolen following the murder. There was reportedly a span of time when the bodies of the victims were left largely unattended in the truck, in the basement, and in the corridor of the house. Some guards who had not participated in the murders and had been sympathetic to the Grand duchesses were reportedly left in the basement with the bodies in 1991 the presumed burial site of the imperial family and their servants was excavated in the woods outside yekaterinburg the grave had been found nearly a decade earlier as earlier mentioned but was kept hidden by its discoverers from the communists who were still ruling russia at the time the grave only held nine of the expected eleven sets of remains DNA and skeletal analysis match these remains to Tsar Nicholas II, Tsarina Alexandra, and three of the four Grand Duchesses, Olga, Tatiana, and presumably Maria. The other remains, with unrelated DNA, correspond to the family's doctor, Yevgeny Bodkin, their valet, Alexei Troop, their cook, Ivan Karitanov, and Alexandra's maid, Anna Demidova. Forensic expert William R. Maples decided that the Sirevich Alexei and Anastasia's bodies were missing from the family's grave. Russian scientists contested this conclusion, however, claiming it was the body of Maria that was missing. The Russians identified the body as that of Anastasia by using a computer program to compare photos of the youngest Grand Duchess with the skulls of the victims from the mass grave. They estimated the height and width of the skulls where pieces of bone were missing. American scientists found this method inexact. American scientists thought the missing body to be Anastasia because none of the female skeletons showed the evidence of immaturity, such as an immature collarbone, undescended wisdom teeth, or immature vertebrae in the back that they would have expected to find in a 17-year-old. In 1998, when the remains of the imperial family were finally interred, a body measuring approximately five foot seven was buried under the name of Anastasia. Photographs taken of her standing beside her three sisters up until six months before the murders demonstrate that Anastasia was several inches shorter than all of them. The account of the Urofsky note indicated that two of the bodies were removed from the main grave and cremated at an undisclosed area in order to further disguise the burials of the Tsar and his retinue. If the remains were discovered by the whites, since the body count would not be correct, Searches of the area in subsequent years failed to turn up a cremation site or the remains of the two missing Romanov children. However, on August 23, 2007, a Russian archaeologist announced the discovery of two burned, partial skeletons at a bonfire site near Yekaterinburg that appeared to match the site described in Yurovsky's memoirs. The archaeologist said the bones were from a boy who was roughly between the ages of 10 and and 13 years old at the time of his death and of a young woman who was roughly between the ages of 18 and 23 years old Anastasia was 17 years and 1 month old at the time of her assassination while his sister Maria was 19 years 1 month old and her brother Alexei was 2 weeks shy of his 14th birthday Anastasia's elder sisters Olga and Tatiana were 22 and 21 years old respectively at the time of the assassination Along with the remains of the two bodies, archaeologists found shards of a container of sulfuric acid, nails, metal strips from a wooden box, and bullets of various caliber. The site was initially found with metal detectors and by using metal rods as probes. DNA testing by multiple international laboratories such as the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory and Innsbruck Medical University confirmed that the remains belonged to the Tsarevich Alexei and to one of his sisters, proving conclusively that all family members, including Anastasia, died in 1918, the DNA of the second youngest sister already having been found. The parents and all five children are now accounted for and each has his or her own unique DNA profile. However, as reported by one of the studies, it should be mentioned that a well-publicized debate over which daughter, Maria or Anastasia, has been recovered from the second grave cannot be settled based upon the DNA results reported here. In the absence of a DNA reference from each sister, we can only conclusively identify Alexei, the only son of Nicholas and Alexandra. The bodies of Tsar Nicholas II, Tsarina Alexandra, and three of their daughters were finally interred in the St. Catherine Chapel at St. Peter and Paul Cathedral, St. Petersburg on July 17, 1998, 80 years after they were murdered. At the cornerstone of the myth of Anastasia Returned is the existence of the Romanov fortune, millions of rubles of gold sitting unclaimed at the Bank of England, a legend. This is just as much a fairy tale as anything else. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Robert K. Massey, whose serious 1969 biography Nicholas and Alexandra was made into an Oscar-winning 1971 film, settled the question of the fabled inheritance in his later book, The Romanovs, The Final Chapter. Massey wrote, There is evidence that, during the First World War, Nicholas II brought home whatever private money he and his wife had in British banks and used it to pay for hospitals and hospital trains. A London bank archivist is quoted as saying, people keep asking. They will not take no for an answer. It's frustrating. Listen, if there had been family money here, it would have come out long ago. The 1984 death of Anna Anderson in Charlottesville, Virginia filled in some last pieces of the puzzle. After the bodies of Tsar Nicholas and his family were exhumed and identified in the 1990s, a subsequent DNA test proved Anderson had no relation to the Russian royal family, as previously mentioned. For 63 years, she had somehow managed to live another woman's existence, and in doing so inspired a play, a film, television depictions, novels, and a musical. I know that there are still many of you out there who want to believe that Anastasia made it out of there alive. Sometimes it's easier to go on living believing in miracles. And when it comes to believing in miracles, especially after all the journeys we've taken together at 1001 during these past three years, I'm definitely keeping an open mind. Oh, and by the way, we promised you an update on the second miracle of the sun. And here it is. This is from Andrea Tornelli on Vatican Insider World News. 13th of October, 2017. 100 years to the day. After the miracle of the sun, Andrea Tornelli, on Vatican Insider World News, writes: Exactly one hundred years have passed since the famous experience that took place during the last Marian apparition of Fatima on 13th of October, 1917, when immediately after the three shepherdesses had seen Our Lady, a crowd of seventy thousand people flocked to the Cova de Iria during a violent rainstorm and witnessed the miracle of the sun. As they watched with their naked eye, the sun seemed to come closer, change color, and dance around the sky. Several non-believers also witnessed that miracle, such as the news reporter of a professed secularist newspaper. Now, something similar seems to have happened in Benin City, Nigeria, on the occasion of the reconsecration of the country wanted by the bishops. In communicating the decision, the bishops recalled that Nigeria is going through a period marked by tensions, unrest, and a general sense of despair and dissatisfaction. There are institutional problems, cases of selective application of the rule of law, as well as unequal distribution of resources, corruption, and impunity. On the morning of October 13th, at the reconsecration ceremony led by the Archbishop of Jos, Ignatius Ayu Kaigama, President of the Nigerian Episcopal Conference, 53 bishops took part together with more than a 1,000 priests, 2,000 religious and about 55,000 faithful. In the afternoon after the celebration, the witnesses tell us there was a heavy downpour followed by the appearance of the sun changing color and dancing in the sky. According to Father Chris Anyanwu, Director of the Episcopate Social Communications, this unusual phenomenon Rejoice the hearts of the pilgrims present at the celebration, and many of them have attested that what they saw recalls the experience of Fatima in 1917. Certainly the great joy of the participants in seeing these signs showed to the enthusiasm of their faith that Nigeria will no longer be the same. At a time when only negative news ever arrives from Nigeria, from the scourge of fundamentalist Islamist terrorism to abductions, such as that of Italian priest Mauricio Palu, who has been recently released, that solar phenomenon at the end of the storm has drawn attention to the act of consecration to Mary decided by bishops of the country. I did check online for Islamic terror on Christians, and the list here is voluminous. Just in 2017, I'm going to skip Islamist murders of Christians in Egypt, Pakistan, Kenya, and Syria, and just do some of the more recent 2017 murders in Nigeria. On January 1 in Rivers State, 17 Christians killed by gunmen yelling Allah, who opened fire on the people returning from service. In Nigeria, December 24th, a shooting attack on a Christian community leaves six dead, including a young child. Two days prior to that in Nigeria, Nindam, Suspected Fulani opened fire on a church group singing Christmas carols, killing four. In Nigeria, December 4th, 2017. In Numan, Muslim terrorists kill a Christian family of three, including a pregnant woman who was raped. In November 2017, November 13th, Nigeria, Waring. Two Christians are murdered and then mutilated with machetes by Fulani Muslim militants. November 7, 2017, Nigeria, Riom. Nine Church of Christ members are ambushed and murdered by Muslim terrorists as they're returning from the market. Five days prior to that, in Gambitiv, Nigeria, Muslims target and kill three Christians. On October sixteenth, Nigeria, 29 deaths, mostly women and children are among the 29 Christians massacred by Fulani Muslim terrorists while trying to take shelter at a school. On October 14th, Nigeria, a Muslim raid on a Christian village leaves six dead. The day before that, in Huke, Nigeria, two Christians are murdered by Fulani terrorists. On October 11th, Nigeria, a two year old is among four Christians murdered by Fulani terrorists. There are pages and pages and pages and pages of outright murders and atrocities committed by Muslims in Africa. In the name of their God, Allah. Nigeria looks like it's taking the brunt of it. And it's no surprise that God would have something to say about it. It's sad. Whether you believe in God or not, if you have a soul as a human being, news like this just saddens you. The world is becoming civilized, but not nearly fast enough. Why the subject of our show today? We'll say it again. If you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. Well, our 20 days of below-freezing weather here in southern Virginia has ended, complete with lots of burst water lines and cold feet and hands. It's 45 today. It feels like a heat wave. How are we going to handle the 95-degree summers again? We have lots of great adventures yet to cover at 1001, so stay with us. And enjoy new episodes every Sunday night. This past week we released at 8 p.m. and Apple didn't publish it till 9:30. I'm going to start having our shows published at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time from now on, and we'll see if we can get you the shows closer to 8 o'clock. Oh, and I do have an update for you. This is pretty exciting for us. All of our three shows archives are now at YouTube. If you have Smart TV, or whether you're using your iPhone, iPad, or desktop, go to YouTube. Search 1001 Heroes, and you'll find everything. Of course, it's no video, it's, t- it's still audio, but the fact that we've hit smart TV is a big step for us, so I just wanted you to know. Thanks for being such great fans. We appreciate it very much. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.